This is the word of God. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Let's pray. Our Father, we desire, it's my hope, it's my expectation that we all desire to know your will, to delight in it, to see its value, and to do it. I pray that you would help us this morning to be conformed not to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds as it is in your word, Lord, as it is being taught by your word, so that we would know your will, delight in it, and do it, and that we'd see how good it is. In Jesus' name, amen. At every point of our lives as Christians, uh, you could say that our lives are gospel-shaped or that it all is of grace. That's how Spurgeon wrote this little pamphlet, All of Grace, talking about the Christian life. The Apostle Paul, as he begins to exhort us as how to live our lives as Christians, having received all the benefits and all of the graces that are spoken of in Romans chapter 3, especially through the end of chapter 11, he's now going into a practical or an ethical exhortation. How do Christians live in this world? But he begins it by reminding us that we dwell in the mercies of God, that we're established there in chapter 5, verse, verses 1 through 5, we're established in the grace of God. We're standing there. Our lives are defined by the grace of God. But another way that we could understand that is that our, our lives as Christian depends upon God's sovereign will to show us undeserved, everlasting kindness. When we talk about the grace of God, we need to understand that those who have received the grace of God have received it by the will of God. And that is not a will that God on a whim just changes now and then. Now, today, he feels this way, he'll do this, and he'll decide that for you, and tomorrow it'll be something else. God's will, when we speak of his decree or his divine will, we understand that his will never changes. When we talk about God and who he is, we talk about him as being immutable, and something about God that is immutable is his will. And so it's his will to show you and I, if we are his people, if we belong to Christ, everlasting kindness, quite apart from our deserving it. Romans chapter 9 is where we learned this recently. Verse 11 speaks about Esau. It speaks about these twins, Jacob and Esau. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. And he said there that I have loved one, Jacob, namely, and hated Esau. So that purpose would be fulfilled. And then in verse 15 he says, I have compassion, or mercy, rather, on whom I have mercy, 
and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Notice this is God's will, his divine right as God, to show mercy. God cannot be under compulsion to show mercy, otherwise it's not mercy. He wills to show mercy on whom he wills and to have compassion on whom he wills. And verse 16 describes it very well. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God, that is on his will, who has mercy. It can be said of true believers in Christ, on his church, that it is God's eternal, omnipotent, and unchanging. Now, if you understand what I mean here, his eternal is everlasting, omnipotent is powerful, all-powerful, and unchanging will. It is his everlasting, all-powerful, and unchanging will to save you if you are in Christ. Consider that for a minute. It's the will of God that's unchangeable, unthwartable, and it's in his everlasting plan to save you. It's in his will. Ephesians 1, 3 through 11. You can turn there if you want. This is where I'm coming from. In Romans 9, we said it in different words. Ephesians 1, 3 through 11 says it in this way. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him, that is in Christ, before the foundation of the world, before anything was made, is what that means, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, How does this all come about? Why does it all come about? According to the purpose of his will. It all comes about according to the purpose of God's will, to the praise and the glory of his grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. Savingly, he's saying there. Those who have faith in Christ, that mystery of God's eternal will is now known to you because you now experience that grace, that eternal will of God to save you. And how does this happen? According to the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, that is in Christ, in heaven and in earth, all things in earth, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according, what? To the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Believers, it is God's eternal, omnipotent, and unchanging will to save you. It will happen. You will be saved according, as we've just been hearing, to the will of God. Now I point out that our salvation, our eternal salvation, rests upon God's eternal, unchanging, and powerful will because of what we'll learn today. We are saved. This is what we're going to learn today. We are saved by the will of God 
in the mercies of God we are standing to delight in and to do the will of God. We are saved by the will of God in order to delight in and do the will of God. So often when we talk about trust and obey, the song that Cindy played, doing God's will, we sometimes forget how good his will is. The, way, the reason I start out talking about the eternal divine will of God to save us is because the battle often of doing God's will or not comes down to, has God said? Is God good? Can his will really be good if it causes suffering? If it means suffering? If it means, morally speaking, cutting off your arm? gouging out your eyes, doing what seems by all means as sinners natural, not conforming to it, but being transformed. Doing the will of God, as we'll talk about this morning, in this life of sin, as people who still have a proclivity to sin, means self-sacrifice. It's not always going to seem good. But I want us to be convinced in our hearts that doing the will of God is always good. That's why I start there. Our eternal salvation depends on it. So first, in our text, we'll come to it here. Knowing and doing God's will. Notice, I'm going to read all of this. Do not be conformed, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern... What is the will of God? What is good and acceptable and perfect? I read all of verse 2 because all of it is necessarily conjoined. As I said last time we were together concerning this text, I said, the renewal of your mind conjoins, do not be conformed, be transformed to the testing and discerning what the will of God is. But first, as we have to do with what the will of God is here this morning, first the will of God regards his revealed will, and regards our conduct in light of it. We're all familiar with the question, and we always tend to come back to this question in our society. How can I know God's will for our life, my life? How can I, if you're young, oftentimes this is what people ask you. Do you know God's will for your life? And, and I remember as a young man being absolutely bewildered by that question. Now, often we talk about knowing God's will for our lives as a sort of esoteric, something veiled, something very hard to get at, something that sometime in the future we'll have some dream or some revelation or some, some feeling that just we just follow that until we, oh, now we're in the pathway of the will of God. Being one of few free societies in the history of the world where we can go where we want to go, uh, somewhat now. Things are tightening, aren't they? Their walls are closing in. I just spoke with somebody who's concerned about the vaccine passport, you know. Uh, she doesn't want to get it. She doesn't want to feel those walls of resistance closing in around her. And one of the things I said is I don't also feel like I should get it. If you do, that's not my decision to make. But, but I don't want to feel those walls. But I told her in the history of the world, people have lived with walls around them. 
Their freedom was not what we ex- experience in many parts of the world today. They don't get up in the morning and say, what am I going to be when I grow up? Maybe I'll be the president. That's unique in the history of this world, I'll tell you. To grow up and actually develop the skills that God has given you, to, uh, to uh, increase in them, to put yourself to a task, to dedicate your skills and ability to mature them and to be what you want to be when you grow up is something that not much of the world has experienced over the course of the thousands and thousands of years of civilization. And so we as Americans almost have this unique question. I have all these options in front of me. God, what is your will for me? And I think it's in some ways that we're asking the wrong question. Sometimes we think that it's up to us to determine what God has not revealed to us. God, you have some secret will out there for me. If only I could find out what it is, then I would know what my purpose in life is. Well, let me say, in the first place, Scripture here, Paul here, is concerned with a particular aspect of God's will. Notice, once again, that in verses 1 and 2 in our text, Paul is concerned with a very distinct aspect of the Christian life, namely, how we ought to live it. How we who are in the mercies of God go about living our lives. So there is practicality, there's ethics, there are moral responsibilities, there are living towards God in a manner of worship with the way that we conduct ourselves in life. So the, the way that we should understand in the first place the will of God here has to do with what pleases God ethically or what regards a righteous life or practical holiness in life such that we would please God with our lives, with the conduct of our living. So this is not altogether to answer the question of what I ought to be in regards to should I pursue a nursing degree or a science degree or an accountant degree or should I work in the trades or what. That's not primarily what we're concerned with here. Not conforming to the world in verse 2, but being transformed regards a moral change. And the renewal of our minds is that link to that moral change and knowing the will of God which determines that moral change. How are you going to know what not being conformed means if you don't know the will of God, is what he's saying here. How do you know what ethic you ought to live in contradiction to this world that is passing away and rebelling against God if you don't know the will of God? What are you going to be transformed into? There's all sorts of things people are transforming into nowadays that are not the will of God. Right? So it's being informed. It's informing that non-confirmation and the transformation that Paul is concerned about. Not conforming to the world, but being transformed regards moral change. It demands the renewal of our minds. In addition to this, Paul is not speaking of God's unknown will here, his secret will. For the very fact that it's secret. <laughs> oh, you're, you're just, I'm just trying to lay it down here for us. If we talk about 
God's unknown will or secret will, there may be a reason why it is that way. If there are things about your life that you wish you knew but you don't know, am I going to go bald when I grow up? You know? Those types of questions, you know, you're just, you don't have an answer from God directly. You might have some scientific guesses, you might have some things, but it's not really God's concern to reveal to you all the details of your life. And guess what? If that's the truth about God, it should be the truth about you leaving that in God's disposal. So much of our anxiety comes with the question of what am I supposed to be, what am I supposed to do, what am I supposed to wear, and what am I supposed to look like, and all of these things. God, if you would just give this to me. We often distinguish between the decreative will of God, that's what, that which God is in God's eternal purposes, which belongs to him, which only comes to us if he reveals them to us. We read about that a little bit in Ephesians chapter 1. None of that would we know unless God revealed it to us. But he did reveal that to us. In Deuteronomy 29, 29, Moses writes this, The secret things belong to God, to Adonai our Elohim, to the Lord our God, to the Sovereign One. In a sense, that's a very gracious thing. You know that? I think today we are absolutely overwhelmed by information. A few years ago, I, I got in the habit of getting up in the morning and I'd read the news. And, and when, I, when you read the news nowadays, you read the news from everywhere. In fact, I did recently. And I read the news that a mother in California, I believe, you know, got up and stabbed her three children, young children. And I was doing that every day. Read this. And all you read is the depravity and the horrific nature of man from Illinois to California to Alaska to across the seas to wars and rumors of wars. And, I, and I'm sitting here going, I have my own sins. I have a church to attend to. I have a community to consider. It's too much for me. There is a sense where God... Keeping us from knowing all that God knows is a mercy. That knowing the will of God, if we knew everything that accorded to his will, which we can't, by the way, Paul has already just explained to us in Romans chapter 11, who can know the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Have you taught him anything? Have you searched him out fully? If you haven't searched him out fully, you cannot know his will absolutely. So the secret things belong to God. The Puritans said, all things belong to God's disposal. All things are in his disposal. Be content to leave them there. You're not God. You don't need to know everything that he knows, even about you. Your, his will for you on every aspect of your life. Why? Because he hasn't revealed all those details to you. We, we come under so much stress and our peace is removed and so much this consternation, or that word's wrong, 
we, consternation comes to us because we think we have to know everything that God has appointed that he hasn't revealed for us to know. James warns us that we'll make plans and we'll have all of our you know, calendars marked up for tomorrow. And then he says, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. So when you make your plans, say, if the Lord wills. And that implies you don't know if that plan is coming to pass. How about the last year? Anybody plan 2020 to go the way that it went? The whole year? We can't even plan a day and know exactly what that means. How about some humility, right? That humility will benefit us here. Sometimes the way we try to pursue God's secret will actually falls away from pursuing something that can be detrimental merely to our peace, and it can become downright sinful. Often it approaches divining omens. I've heard people say, in fact, at our wedding, we had some birds fly over when we were married, and two, two different Christian, professing Christians came up to us and said, did you see those birds fly over you? That tells me that God is going to bless your marriage and all of these things. And I just said in myself, I chuckled, but, but this is divining omens. This is not how God has deemed us to know his will. Be warned against that. You know how many people have told me, God told me to come to Kauai. Uh, I've been told that God told me, we had this guy come recently. God told me to come to Kauai and here I am, a pilgrim, and I'm come here to correct you and to... And the last day he was here, he swore me up and down and cursed me and called all manner of condemnation from God down upon me as a, a supposedly a prophet from God who was told to do this. And then two years or three, four years ago, we had a guy that I was discipling here. God told me to leave Idaho and come over here. And I come to find out he's running from a warrant. I had a neighbor who was deciphering dreams and this is the will of God for my life and it destroyed his marriage. It disintegrated his life in front of us because they're searching out the secret will of God and not knowing how to find God's will, not being content in what we know God has revealed to us. We're teaching our children the Shorter Catechism, Westminster, and the first and second question goes like this. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And then the second question is so important. I, I think every church should just beat this into our brains. What rule or what standard has God given to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him? That's the great end. What rule do we have now? How do we do that? That's a good question. That's God's will for your life. How do we do that? And then it says, The word of God, which is contained in the scriptures of the Old and New Testament, is the only rule to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him. That is the standard. Everything else is judged by this standard scripture. If you want to know the will of God, 
No, the Word of God. It's no coincidence that the longest chapter, 150 verses in Scripture, in the longest book of Scripture, Psalm 119, has to do with knowing, delighting in, doing the will of God that is revealed to us by the Word of God. In the first eight verses of Psalm 119, the psalmist gives reference to God's revelation in seven different ways. He talks about the law of the Lord, the precepts of God's precepts, his statutes twice, his commandments, his testimonies, his ways, and his righteous rules, all that which God has revealed to his people, this is what is going to make his way, guide his feet, He's going to hide it in his heart. That's what's going to define his life. That's what he delights in. Have you ever thought to yourself what a gift God's word is to us? If the chief end of man, which it is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, if that's the reason why we were made, that God has given us a way of knowing how that happens, how that can happen and will happen, I have a few practical, practical exhortations. If you want to know how God will, what God wills for you and how you ought to live, know Scripture. If you want to know what pleases God, know Scripture. Read your Bible and pray. That little thing we teach to children is so crucial for us adults. Read your Bible and pray. If you don't like to read or you're unable to read, listen to God's word. Be attentive to the preaching of the word. Meditate on what you hear, on what you read. That is, bring it to mind over and over and over again while you're walking, while you're sitting, while you're laying down. Buy an audio Bible these days. We have resources that we can use at our disposal. But while you're listening to it, don't listen to it while you're merely working or while you're merely exercising. Sit down if you're not going to read the Bible, if you have a difficult time reading. Sit down and listen to it. Try not to be distracted. Listen on purpose to it. Ask God to help you to form good reading and listening habits. Listen to this, please. Don't forsake the lost virtue of discipline. Man, we are at the stage of life where if anything becomes difficult, I give up. If there's something to push through, to try, to discipline, to make good habits about, it is reading God's word. We have it. People died in order to give it to you. Many lives were lost in order to make this Bible available to the common person. Do you know that that effort is not even being lost now in Rome, which was the one who was really behind the slaughter of people that were translating the book? Even now, Rome in our country, in different factions, are telling their parishioners, go ahead, read the Bible. Go ahead, read it. I find, that's amazing, people, that that's happening. Souls will be saved because of that happening. And we have it. So, God's people, in the end, 
love God's word because we delight in knowing God and doing God's will. Is that true of you? Psalm 143 verse 10 says, teach me to do your will for you are my God. See that? If God is your God, you want to do his will. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. Level ground is a ground that we can have some confidence that we're understanding things rightly. We're seeing the right perspective of life. We're being taught in a right way. We're going to have a right end. It's the Holy Spirit who teaches us, who illumines us to the truth of God's word. There's a temporal cost in doing God's will. From Scripture, we learn that doing God's will in this life necessarily leads to self-sacrifice. And I bring this up so that we will be emboldened to renew our mind, to do God's will, no matter what it costs us. Two months ago, before we were here, I said this. At every point of Jesus' life and ministry, he did the will of God, and we'll look at that later. But we know what doing the will of God costs, and we know that doing the will of God meant his sacrifice. And isn't that what we see in verse 1? The, the, the pattern of the Christian life is that we present our lives to God. Ourselves, we present our bodies to God as a living sacrifice. Doing the will of God, I believe, in this life, in this sin-filled world, full of Satan's devices and people under his dominion, will lead to self-sacrifice in this world of sin. Dying to self, living to God. Ephesians 6, 5, and 6. Think about this. Now, I want to, I chose this verse for two reasons. We're talking about knowing the will of God. Now, if you were writing scripture to a slave, what would you tell that slave? I'm talking about now. A few years ago, I would have said, get out, run away. That person has no right over you. You can't be owned. You're a human being, right? Are your minds conformed to the word of God? Are we renewed by the word of God? Here's what Paul wrote to a slave, to slaves. He says, slaves, in Ephesians 6, 5 and 6, obey your earthly masters. I think if I went to Portland and I read that scripture... I would probably be killed in the streets. I think they would probably kill me. You think so? That's radical. Slaves obey your masters? With fear and trembling, with a sincere heart. What? As you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservant slaves of Christ. Doing the will of God from the heart. Now, I pick that out because doing the will of God here implies this is not going to be easy for these slaves. You see, these slaves he's talking to are slaves in the Christian church. They're Christians. And he's telling them probably to your masters who are not believers, obey them. To your unregenerate, unbelieving masters, obey them. Not even unwillingly, not just spitefully, but from the heart. Why? Why should they obey him? Because it's the will of God, he said. 
I think I would be stoned in the streets. What does that mean about slavery? It must mean that not all slavery is evil, according to God's word. Again, stoned in the streets, right? The Chattel kind of slavery that we practice in our country, the slave trade was a wicked, an abomination in the sight of Scripture. But we learn that from Scripture. You know, it's ironic that everybody who is pulling down stat- statues of both North and South Civil War uh, people are pushing also for communism, which makes slavery out of slaves out of everybody to the state. You know, you know, the way that history and people change over time, we cannot get caught up in the fold. The Word of God is that standard. How to think rightly about these things. So that's why I bring that text up, because it's a hard text. I wouldn't have preached that text a few years ago. I wouldn't have known how. God willing, he's still renewing my mind. And we have to talk about, hey, if slavery is... If that's an institution that could be a valid one, what does it look like? It sure doesn't look like what we were doing. But even to talk about these things, we have to have renewed minds, don't we? Even to talk about them. 1 Peter 3.17, this is a little bit more mainstream, and this isn't easy. For it is better to suffer for doing good that if... It should be God's will, if that should be God's will, then for doing evil. Not many of us want to suffer for doing good. Let me bring that down a little bit. You're at a Fortune 500 company, right? You've got a great, great job. You've got a nice house in the suburb with the kids, or you're working for the government or whatever, and they say, your new boss tells you, oh, I'm going to change genders, what I really am is a female, so I'm going to move from male to female, and you're going to call me him, or her, and she, and all of these things, and I'm a Christian. Oh, and by the way, if, if you say that you're against that, you're going to go through, through brainwashing treatment, and if you still don't, then you're going to lose your job. You know there are Christians every day that face this sort of stuff now. And if they hold to a Christian worldview and say, you know, for the love, because I love you, I will not pretend that this is what you really are. But I will tell you the answer to what you need. You need help. You need the grace of God. You need salvation. You need mercy. You go along with that. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 1. Not only do they go along with it, but they approve of the same sin, and then they take part in it. You start approving that. You start approving those worldviews in this world, and there will be a time lapse. You won't even notice it between that approval and your taking part in it, celebrating it. Now, there's a way to do that. There's a way to do that in love, and there's a way to do that in sin. But we're going to be faced with it. Suffering for righteousness' sake, that accords with the will of God. It's going to cost to be moral. It already does cost many people to do the will of God. Is the will of God worth it? Second, I, need, I will speed up here. 
we'll get through this. Second, the renewing, the renewed mind is able to discern the will of God. Here in the text, notice it says that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God. By testing, you may discern. The ESV uses this phrase, testing, you may discern, to translate just one Greek word. And, and from what I understand, this Greek word is it's quite difficult to translate, which is why it's translated prove, it's tra- translated by testing you would approve of, which is probably a little bit closer even. The idea is that the renewed mind helps you understand, helps you sort through what is and what isn't the, w- the will of God, but not just sort through what it is, but to give approval to it, to discern that this is God's will and approve it rather than to approve what the world wants to conform us to. You see? I've said before, there's no success in not conforming to this world or true Christ-like transformation apart from knowing God's will. The renewed mind is the link between these things, between knowing God's will and doing it, because it causes us. It doesn't just enable us or make it possible for us to discern. It actually in, it causes us to discern. When we have our renewed minds, we discern. We test and we discern what is the will of God. And that's important for us to know. Leon Morris says that the force of the language is that you will test if your mind is renewed. You will test and you will give that approval. Discern what is the word will of God. It's not merely possible, but you will do it. Secondly, the second main point, knowing the value of God's will. He says that you may discern what is the will of God, and then he says these three things, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, we've already seen that God's will in this verse regards what God's revealed will is for us and how we ought to live, that is, ethically, morally. Now we see that the renewed mind also comprehends the quality of God's will. There's, this is part of that being in the mercies of God. Because evil people know God's will to some degree, and it is not good for them. They don't want it. But this is knowing the quality of it. Some teach here that God is describing, or his will is being described in three sort of uh, degrees or compartments. Like you have God's good will, which can be defined in this assorted way, and his acceptable will, which can be defined this way, and then his perfect will. You know, we often talk about your perfect will be done, right? Uh, That's not, I believe, what the apostle is getting at here. He's not trying to say God has these three different assortments of wills. We just want to know what we fit in in regards to them. And that might be something that you've heard preached in the past. What I think he's pointing out is that God's will is. These are describing his will. It's good. God's will is good. It's acceptable. Not merely that it's better than some other things, but that it's always right. It's always perfect, or it's always appropriate, rather, and it's perfect. It's basic to the story of all Scripture that the battle between good and evil hinges on the good will of God. This is, this is where I want to bring us to 
really as we close. The whole story of God's creation and mankind's fall, mankind's redemption, has to do with the question, is God's will good? And this started in the garden, didn't it? The devil has taught humanity to question the goodness of God's will, even to despise it. But at the very beginning, it was the question of his goodness. Is is it appropriate? Is it pleasing? Is it perfect? Satan leads Eve to question the goodness of God's approbation. Shall not eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he says, has God said? Questions his word. He's just trying to keep you. This is Satan paraphrasing, I think, what he's getting out in his temptation, that God is just trying to keep you from being equal to him. He's trying to keep you from what is best, in other words, from what is good. Don't you know you'll be like him? You'll be like God? Seems like he wants all the good for himself. And so the question that... that Satan is raising is, is what God told you, is his will for you good? Seems like it's not. The lie is to question the will of God, the goodness of God in his will. By the mercies of God, verse 1, we are identified not by the first Adam who failed of that test, but by the last Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus did not fail to do the will of God. Hebrews 10. Go to Hebrews 10, would you? 5 through 10. We'll conclude very quickly. Now, the apostle is here referencing Psalm 40. He's taking this from Psalm 40, speaking of Christ. How are you saved? We just got done celebrating Good Friday, Easter. But how were you saved? We saw at the beginning of this sermon that Ephesians and Romans talk about God's will being before the foundation of the world that he saves us in Christ. Right? But how are you saved? And some of us will answer by the cross of Christ, by the resurrection of Christ, by the gospel of Christ. But there's something here that is very explicitly said that if this isn't true, the cross and the resurrection won't happen and won't be our salvation. Read this with me or follow along as I read. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, and here he's quoting Psalm 40, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said, this is Christ saying, Here I am, it is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. Now, here we get this wonderful thing in Scripture. Not somewhere else, but right here is a commentary by the same apostle about what Paul, or Paul, gave gave it away, who I think wrote Hebrews here. Uh, What the author of Hebrews is, is meaning by that quotation. Verse 8, for he said, sacrifice and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, though they were offered in accordance with the law. 
That was good. Those things were good because they were offered in accordance with the law. But then he said, this is, he's saying of Christ, here I am, I have come to do your will. And here is this all-defining feature. He sets the first, that is the sacrifice, he sets that aside to establish the second, namely the will of God being done. And then verse 10, listen. By that will we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the blood of Jesus Christ once for all. Here's what he's saying. Apart from Jesus doing the will of God perfectly, the sacrifice would have been of no effect for our salvation. Do you understand that? R.C. Sproul used to say it this way. He used to say, we're justified by faith alone, but in reality, we're justified by works alone. Now I'm confusing everyone in here. What does he mean? He means if Christ himself did not perfectly do the will of God, if he had any stain in it all in himself, we would not be righteous though we trusted in him because he would not be righteous. Our righteousness, the reason why justification by faith is ours in Christ, is because he perfectly did the will of God. We are saved by his righteousness, by his act of righteousness. You see how important doing the will of God is. Here's again what I want us to see. It's not only in eternity that it was the will of God to save us. It was in Christ being fulfilled, the will of God to save us. The will of God, beloved, is good. It is acceptable. It is perfect. And it was perfectly fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Now, that's how I began this sermon. That's where we recognize the quality of God's will is that it took it being fulfilled in Jesus. Perfect righteousness being fulfilled. He said, I came to fulfill all righteousness. It took that to save us, to, to ground us in the mercies of God. But here I want us to recognize that Jesus, as he fulfilled his Father's will perfectly on our behalf to save us, it has been proven to us once and for all that the will of God is good. Do you doubt that God's will is good sometimes for your life? I told you it will cost you. It's going to cost us to live according to God's will. It's going to look like presenting our bodies as living sacrifices, wholly acceptable to God. But it's when we know that his will is good, that it's perfect, that it's acceptable. It's when we know that it always is that I think we'll be more inclined, more faithful to do it to do the will of God. If we trust Christ, God has put his law into our minds and written them on our hearts. We have the Holy Spirit in us. We have the word of God given to us to enable our minds to understand and to do God's will. Ultimately, all of this accords with this, that we be conformed to the image of Christ, who always delighted to do the will of God. And that should be our delight as well. Let's pray. Our Father, I pray that you would help us, Lord, 
we're in this world, and, and just preaching today, I realize how abrasive some of the things that I preached is to, this e- to the ears of a modern Christian. We want our minds to be conformed to your word because it's so subtle the way that time moves and the way that culture spins things and we're just we're in the world all the time and if we're not renewed in our minds we're going to start thinking like them and we will not heed your word we will not delight in it we will not see it for the quality that it is and then we will not see Jesus not the Jesus of scripture it, it, all of these things connect and it all lord comes back to your yourself in eternity willing to save sinners to make sinners make out of sinners worshipers who delight to do your will i pray that that would be us the here this morning renew our minds so that we will do it in the coming months as we learn these practical exhortations i pray that we would be changed the way that we act in the world In Jesus' name, amen.